sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. Do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You bruised half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, what's up? It's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. You know, you can email the show. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. We will accept your letters like this one from Nick. Nick. Nick writes the show, and he says this. I am desperate for you guys to do an episode about Rush. Well, sure, Nick. <laughs> he <laughs> we, says, we can do this. He says Rush has a really good reputation for being awesome guys. People say they're great to their fans. They appear in comedies. They tend to be laughing at themselves and being nice. But what I want to know, is there a dark side to Rush? I have heard rumors that they have been less than nice to other musicians. There must be a story here and something that you can dispel or confirm because you are the rumor and innuendo guys. That is true. You Guilty as charged, Nick. So are, you're a Rush guy, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, let's qualify that because I feel like Rush is one of those bands where there's like Rush guys and then there's like, I appreciate Rush. Okay. Uh, Okay. I'm not a Rush guy in terms of that. (laughs) I don't have Rush t-shirts, but I did go see Rush in the early 90s. Oh, wow. When I was still in high school. Yeah. And Primus opened up. Yeah. And like... That whole thing is a thing with like Les Claypool and Primus and Rush and South Park. Like that is a whole thing, right? Because Les Claypool, they do the the title song for South Park. And oh my gosh, we gotta talk about that too. Um, and people booed Primus, really? Yeah. And you like Primus? I thought a couple of the songs were kind of fun, but like I couldn't listen to Why No. Like this song wasn't out then, but Why Nona's Big Brown Beaver. Like I'm not gonna listen. <laughs> If I have to listen up more than once in like a, a year, it's too many. I'm sure we've talked about my exposure to Primus at a young age on this show before. I think so. I feel like we have, but I will just, I, I'll drop it here again, which is that I was on a school bus on a field trip. We were allowed to bring our Walkmans and our Discmans, uh, and I had a DC Talk in mine, mm-hmm. and the kid next to me, his name was Ike. He had Jerry was a race car driver. Oh wow! And he asked to switch headphones, and I heard Jerry was a race car driver. So that did it for you. I was like, "What is this?" Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's always been what I remember when people bring up Primus is just that visceral reaction of like, "What the hell was that?" What because it? it doesn't sound like DC talk or music. It's a little. It's, <laughs> there's a little bit. There's a little bit of like the avant garde. It's like not even really music. It's just even stranger than that. It is. It is strange. And and they do like look. They do make fun of themselves because they got on the train when South Park when Trey and Matt made this joke about about Rush and Tom Sawyer. They ended up asking to use that clip to introduce Tom Sawyer when they played live in concert. Oh, you're talking about Rush. Rush the band. Yeah. So there's a there's a there's a, a South Park clip and and they're called Little Rush. So instead of Rush, it's like the kids and they're in a band and they sound like <laughs> Rush, only Cartman is is Getty Lee. And and they introduce the song, and then and then after after it happened, then Rush actually uses this as the as the intro. All right, here we go, people. 
got it! And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, oh, one, two, three! God, I will sing it. I am Getty Lee, and I will sing it how I want. And then, and then when it, then when the song starts, it's really rush. Like that's how they, that's how they, that's how they would open up Tom Sawyer. So I didn't have an experience like that with Rush, right? So we talked about my Primus experience. My experience with Rush, like I always was aware of them to a certain degree, but I was, you know, and I've been around classic rock radio. But when I was working in radio early on in Arkansas. I was in the northwest corner of the state, and we had the Northwest Arkansas Music Awards in Wayma. Is that what we called it? <laughs> anyway, uh, I got to host or present for several years at the NWAM Awards, and there was a year where there was some local band, and they booked them in the middle, and they were like, they played Spirit Radio, and we were all just like, wait, what? And everyone was like, this seems like a really bad idea, and then they came on and did it, and it totally ripped. And that was like that's the only thing I remember from hosting that show that that time. It was just like standing agape at the side of the stage with my buddy Chris and being like, "These guys are playing Rush and they're pulling it off." Did you ever hear that song early on as a kid, Spirit of Radio, and feel like who who wrote this song and who's it for? Is this <laughs> it's on the radio station and it's called the spirit of radio. Like I had that disconnect to where I, it wasn't like this is an artist and he wrote this song. And it's about, you know, whatever. I don't know. Marconi or whoever, like someone inventing a radio. Like I was curious about like, was this a song about like, the spirit of radio about liking radio. <laughs> like I really, I wondered like when the, when I used to hear that song. Well, there's an interesting thing about the lyrics to rush songs, which we're going to get to in a moment, but let's, let's stop for a second and address regardless of how we encountered rush, what we think about rush. Do you agree with this? Like this perception of them being nice guys. Yeah. Is that a perception that you yes. have? I, I, I would say the perception is they're, they're very nice. Yeah. Okay. So, to sort this into topics to conquer here for on Nick's behalf, this is what we got to do. There's like three questions. One, does Rush have an outsized reputation for being nice? So we can we can verify that. Number two, if so, does evidence point? Is there any evidence that that could be false? And three, if there are reports of them being rude to other musicians in particular, what is the backstory on that? Because that I would like to know. So. I- I think it's what we have to tackle. I think we have plenty of investigatory things for us to do here to answer <laughs> Nick's question. Because if we can cue sh- the theme music. Because if we can if we can show that Rush are a bunch of buttholes, like 
I mean, that's a story, man. This is the most downloaded podcast, yeah. <laughs> at least for this week. I know, yeah. Like, <laughs> screw doing podcasts just about Taylor Swift, you know, dating a football player. Yeah, Let's no. just do about Rush well, Let's break jerks. it wide open that Getty Lee's an a-hole. Yeah. Uh, okay, so first question, do people think they're nice? I figured we could approach this on the most macro of all levels, okay? So I'm thinking, let's try to speak for the everyman. To do that, the best place to start, in my opinion would be where the everyman hangs out, which is message boards and Reddit threads. That's so every man, that's interesting. What do you say every man is? <laughs> Let's hear what the average Rush fan has to say about this. Will you give us some highlights? Do you have do you have some research here? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a message board that's called talkbase.com. And there's a thread, it's 10 years old, that asks the question, is Getty Lee the most likable person? Okay, so even asking that question points to a certain perception. Right, right. And there's a message board poster named Jack Knife, <laughs> K-N-Y-F-E, who wrote in response to that question, I had a couple of friends meet Getty and Alex after a show in the late 80s, early 90s. They said both of them were extremely nice and gracious and gave them both big money Big money. Is everybody listening to this part? Because this is where things are just, this is such a strange thing to read out loud. (laughs) Big money, which was oversized novelty dollar bills, each with one of the band's members' (laughs) faces on it. And this isn't in sync. This is Rush. Okay, so... When you sent this to me, I had to I had to find out more. I got really distracted because I want to find these novelty dollar bills if they exist. I believe jackknife. Anyone that spells knife that way has to be telling me the truth. You better believe it. <laughs> so being serious. I looked all over. I cannot find proof of these dollar bills existing, but I do think they probably did because It sounds like a logical promo item for their 1985 song, "The Big Money" off of Power Windows, right? Now, if anyone is listening, here's my plea. If you have Rush Big Money, I need you to take a picture of it and send it to wearethestoryguys at gmail.com because I would like to see it. And we promise that we will pay you back. (laughs) If you send it to us in a self-addressed stamped envelope. Yeah, if you you just send us a JPEG of it, (laughs) we'll do something nice back, I promise. There's a username, G19Tony. Who said, quote, I'd like to watch a ball game with Getty. That would be cool. End quote. See, he's nice. It's like that the guy you want to have a beer with. Okay, so why are those yeah. the two things? I, I want to have a beer with this person. I want to have, like, that's like the, the response when you say that someone is a nice guy. Right, right. There's a, there's a forum on Quora. See, you didn't mention Quora. That's another place where, oh, yeah, where, you're right. where people ask questions. <laughs> Some, I gotta say, it's one of my favorite quarters of the internet. Yeah. How, how about this? What do you think of Getty Lee? That's a question. And so there's a man named Ben who responds to this, who claims Ben is a software engineer, apparently. And he says, quote, I've never gotten the chance to meet him, like most of us, I'd like to point out, Ben. <laughs> but his public persona indicates an all-around awesome human being. There are pages and pages of this stuff where people are like, I read on a message board where someone went into detail about a dream they had in which they hung out with Getty Lee and Getty Lee let them play bass guitars that he owned. And the guy was just basically at the end of the post was like, see, he was really nice in my dream. (laughs) 
think the point is slowly being made here. Whether or not it's true, the general perception of Russ, and specifically Getty, nice guys. Right, right. But did you know that this was... Alex started this band. This, not not Getty. Right, right. He was in high school, and there were other guys in it, and it was Alex first. But the lead singer... This is the story, which is awesome. The lead singer slash bass player, kind yeah. of like Getty, right? Could never get a ride to Alex's house. <laughs> it breaks up so many good high school bands with lots of potential. Yeah, so he's done. So he told Alex there was this kid named Gary Weinrib who they should get to replace him. But if you were around Gary's mom at all, you realize something very quickly, and that's that she was Polish. And so when she said Gary, it came out sounding like Gary. And so his buddies picked up on that, and that became a nickname, and then a stage name, and eventually a legal name. And that is why he is named Getty. That is, that is why his name is, is Getty. So, and you brought up his mom and dad, too. So oh, Crazy stuff. Right. They're, they're concentration camp survivors. They were both in, they were in Auschwitz. Um, and this was a very impressionable thing to throw in on their son, Getty, right? So they were in their teens when they were in prison, and Getty had been told that his dad were bribing guards to get his mom's shoes, and his dad was going to search for her when he got liberated. So that, you know, that makes... wild. And then, so they actually, they get married, they get the hell out of Europe, and that's how... And they go to that crazy place where everybody goes, Canada. Yeah, they go to Canada. And then his dad dies, pretty quickly once they're there. And so he's mostly raised by this mother. Yeah. And then Getty and Alex have this band, but they don't meet Neil Pert until six years later. He's not even on the first record. Do, do, okay. Do you know the trivia about who they play their very first gig with? Ah, uh, it's not kiss. It's the New York dolls. The New York dolls. Yeah. The real one. Yeah, and but you have to think about and put put into perspective what year, like when they were starting. Like, and they played with everybody, dude. Yeah, like yeah. They, and they, they and they were more. They were not the progressive rock band they have become known as. Right, they were in the like, early part. They were like a Led Zeppelin. Yeah, and when they were in high school, band. they were they were covering rock songs on the radio. Like you know, you hear that story often of these seventies guys who come yeah. up. But yeah, I mean, they were they were just doing Black Sabbath songs or whatever. Yeah, um, yeah. So they're Canadian, right? And they but, uh, they made a break in where everyone needs to make a break in America, right? They they make a break in Cleveland, yeah. and I think it's funny because the story about them breaking in Cleveland has to do with the song "Working Man," which is right. a song that still gets played on classic rock radio. It's off that first record, even though that first record is not really indicative of what they they'll go on to be. And that song does have a real Cleveland vibe. The the I'm proud of being working class Cleveland thing. Yeah, and so here <clears throat> to throw that throw that at you is a quote from Donna Halper. She worked at WMMS, who broke them in the United States and Cleveland. So this is a quote from her. Quote, I've known Rush since I helped launch their career in the United States in the spring of 74, and I could honestly say success never spoiled them. When they were nobodies, they were polite and courteous and a pleasure to work with. Fast forward to four decades later, and the guys have become famous with a star in the Walk of Fame and inducted in the Rock Hall, but they've remained three of the most down-to-earth people I've ever met in my, all my years in media. It was a privilege to be there like a big sister early in their career, and then to watch them as they grew with confidence 
and to feel some pride in how they succeeded in becoming a rock band that was loved worldwide. And yet years later, they never forgot me, and they always kept in touch. Even when I was no longer in broadcasting and I couldn't get them airplay or help them professionally, the friendship remained anyway. That's a rare, that's rare in media, but it's typical of Rush. Wonderful people who never let their fame go to their head, end quote. Okay, so plenty of evidence here that Rush is very, very, very nice to work with and deal with and know. Uh, But the story of the rise, back to that, as soon as the rock band stuff starts to actually happen, the guy they have playing drums, who started the band with Alex, he decides that it's like just not for him. A typical story of where he's like, he doesn't like to travel, and he, he's starting to feel differently about the music they're making. He becomes less enthusiastic about everything, plus he has some medical stuff, like type 1 diabetes. Not conducive for being in a rock band. So, enter... I was going to say exit stage left, but none of that works for this story at all, even that's the name of a record. Enter Neil Peart... Uh, so Neil Peart's interesting, especially uh, when you contrast him against the guys in Rush, right? He's like a counterbalance to this ease that Alex and Getty have finding their way to rock and roll because he's been trying to get into rock and roll for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. He's been trying to do stuff to get a break. He he moved to London to try to make it as a musician there, and that didn't work. So he came back to Canada, and he works selling tractor parts and just works with a bar band. And so he sits in and kind of pays his dues doing that. And at some point he has a, a friend who is a mutual friend, I guess, of him and either Alex or uh, Getty. And the guy tells him, hey, you need to go try out with this band because I, I, they need a drummer. And, but the story is that Neil thinks his audition is garbage. Speaking of garbage, I actually read, I don't know if you saw this, I read that he took his drums to the audition in garbage cans. Have you heard that? Um, what? Yeah. I, Say that again. I, he took his, his drums. He, he stored them and transported them in garbage cans, supposedly. I, I just read that in one place. But the story is that Getty sort of likes Neil immediately because they're both sort of nerdy. That's an aspect of this band we're going to get into. But Alex thinks Neil isn't cool enough to join the band. Doesn't he have enough, like, grocery bags to put his drums in <laughs> instead of garbage cans? Wouldn't that be what you do? Just, like, tie them all together? <laughs> Or whatever, <clears throat> or garbage bags. Anyway, they do end up inviting Neil to join just in time for them to play in front of huge crowds with Uriah Heep and Manfred Mann. And their first gig with the three of them will be the largest gig they've had so far, which is 10,000 people. And Neil's an important addition to this band. And this, we alluded to this earlier, uh, the interesting thing about their lyrics, right? These two guys, Getty and Alex, have no interest in writing lyrics. They are they are just music heads and instrument heads, right? They're worried about their gear. They're worried about the sounds they're making. They're not worried about what they're saying over these songs. And this makes Rush especially unique because not only is Neil considered one of the greatest drummers in rock history, which sort of depends on how big of a Rush fan you are, but right. most people generally will say that he's he's among the top he also becomes their main lyricist. Right, right. He was a bookworm, and so the other two guys didn't want to write lyrics. So um, we get not just the progressive instrumentation, we get the sci-fi weirdo lyrics and all that stuff. That's from Neil Peart. Yeah, and not a lot of rock drummers writing lyrics. I was I was scratching my head like about rock drummers who wrote a lot of lyrics. Like, sure, you know, there's guys who who won off or two and then there's the guys like phil collins and don henley who come out from behind the kit at some point 
But being just the drummer for the entire career and never having the microphone, but being the guy who writes the lyrics, that's pretty unique. Remember the Phil Collins song, I Don't Care, I Don't Care Anymore? Mm -hmm. I don't care no more. No more. (laughs) No more. You pointing to his his lyric writing genius? So so Rush goes on to have a a huge career, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can I hit you with a handful of accolades here? Oh, yeah, yeah. As of of 2022, Rush ranks... 84th in the U.S. with the sale of 26 million uh, records. Total worldwide album sales over 42 million, 14 platinum, and three multi-platinum albums in the U.S., 17 platinum albums in Canada, nominated for seven Grammy Awards, Canadian Music Hall of Fame in 94, and almost 20 years later, uh, they get into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013. Yeah, and so in the late 70s, for some people who weren't on board the, the Rush train then, they had a big run that was sort of unparalleled and includes four big records. So there's Fly By Night, that's 1975, <laughs> 2112, which is 1976, A Farewell to King, 77, and Hemisphere, 78. They had 19 records, and this core band was together for over 40 years, and they finally disbanded in 2010, 2018, excuse me. Just from having different physical conditions that made it difficult for them to tour. And then Neil dies in 2020 from a form of brain cancer. Okay. So we've established the success. Obviously, they, they're huge. They've made a huge impact. And we seem to be able to make a pretty good case that they're likable. But one of the questions we listed at the top was what evidence might exist that they might not be nice guys after all. Oh, I've got some message board stupidity. <laughs> all right. Let's go back to the message boards. Okay, this is a poster who identifies himself as Leonard Hayde from British Columbia, although he starts talking about being in Toronto, which is the, that's the, that's the it's like California and Maryland, wrong sides. Quote, Getty Lee has been intentionally avoiding me for years. I live about a kilometer away from him. But as you can imagine, he keeps a very low profile and lives a secluded existence here in Toronto. Excuse me. So for those reasons, plus I'm unlucky... Plus the fact that he's intentionally avoiding me for no good reason. I've never seen him. But he does get out there. He plays tennis at a club just up the road, I've been told. He buys his booze at the same liquor store I do. Though I've never seen him. I've talked to a few people who have. For fun. Hang on. This is it's not done. It's, there's more, Brian. For fun on rare occasion. I like to ask a worker or proprietor of wherever I was hanging out in the neighborhood if Getty or Alex ever come in there. And a few times I get a, you just missed him, response. I just missed Getty at the liquor store once. Even a security guard in my building told me that if I had been a few hours ago, I would have seen Alex, the security guard, had a nice chat with him, the bastard. (laughs) Knowing that security guard as I do, I know he talked poor Alex's ear off until Alex, I'm sure, could take no more. I'm 100% sure that Alex politely made his escape. I've been to a couple of restaurants. This is not done. I've been to a couple of restaurants that Getty and Alex like, allegedly. (laughs) Nope, never seen them. I'm not about to try and track Getty down, leave the man in peace, but if, I mean when, I do see him, I hope I'm wearing one of my three Rush t-shirts. 
that should put a smile <laughs> on his face. I, do, I don't think that's real. Do you I think don't, that's real? Do you think Leonard Hayes is a real guy? <laughs> I don't know if he's nice. <laughs> I think we've already determined that maybe... Maybe he's he's the asshole. Yeah, and the I, am I an asshole? <laughs> he's the A. Yta. I, I'm, you're the. I'm asshole. not sure that even if any of that is remotely true, it counts I, as Rush being unkind. I've got some more. Oh the RushForum.com has a thread from March of 2005, which now feels like that was like the Eisenhower administration. <laughs> that is entitled "Neil is standoffish and rude." But most of the thread is just people defending Neil's right to, to privacy, to be so, honest. So so I I also found that there's a woman named Janice who has a blog called Hot Chicks Dick Smart Men, on which, after seeing Rush at Red Rocks in 2008, she wrote the following paragraph. <laughs> Getty Lee is a hippie jerk because he can play that bass of his like nobody's business, and sometimes while simultaneously singing and working the keyboard pedals, and he makes it look easy. And I'm a petty, petty woman because I'm envious of his skill, even though I know he earned it with a lifetime of work and practice, but he's still a jerk. <laughs> I don't think that counts either. I don't, I don't know that any of this counts. Far Out Magazine actually wrote a piece on the fact that Neil didn't do meet and greets, and Getty has been quoted as saying, quote, Neil has a real struggle with fans, and it's not a personal thing, it's a shyness thing. He's not able to be as relaxed around strangers as Alex, or as I am. He doesn't mean to hurt anyone's feelings. He's not trying to be rude. He's just not comfortable. Yeah, but the letter from Nick is about Rush not being nice to other musicians. So this is sort of interesting, right? Like, what's that about? So I did I did start down. <laughs> so what's what's that about? What's that about, Cartman? We we, we what's that about? <laughs> so I did <laughs> I did start down. What? what, what I can't. I can't even. I can't, I can't. I can't even believe this. We're talking about Rush. So, I I, I, I went looking for evidence of this. Right. I went looking. I, I, I went to see what I could find in rock biographies. I went to the deep dark corners of the internet. Oh, did you? Did you get us some crystal meth? You're out there. Okay. There's a few things. Yes. Here's what I found. You know the name Steve Lukather, right? Um, yeah. Well, okay. we've, just because of this show. <laughs> we have talked about Steve Lukather on this show before. So he put out a memoir in 2018, and he has a story in there about Rush. Steve Lukather, for those of you who do not know, in a band called Toto. And I'm going to read from this interview. Uh, that was a true story. Well... Because they ask him about this story about Rush that he puts in the memoir. And this is what his response. That was a true story. We were young and like 20-year-olds. And we were one minute over during our set. And they yanked the plug on us. People were digging us a little too much, I think. <clears throat> and at the time, people thought that we were a rock band. Hold the Line from 1978 was our first hit record. Shouts to Hold the Line, because that is a rockin' song. Shouts to Hold the Line. Look I, at us. I still think we're a rock band, even though we've put out a lot of ballads. Anyway, <laughs> Lucas are really <laughs> getting to the point. Anyway, backstage, things got really uncomfortable. Our crew and Rush's crew were having a fist fight. We just laughed at it. Uh, David Page walked into catering where it was going down, and he's like, okay, I guess I'm not supposed to be here. Rush was a great band. God bless them. So, uh, apparently, uh, it's a little incoherent, but the story is 
that Toto was opening for Rush. It's like 78. And they get the plug pulled on them. It's not like Getty Lee is like Axel and can be like... I don't know whose voice to do. Which, which voice do I do? Do I pretend to do Getty Lee can, or Axel? Can you combine them? Can you do Axel and Getty together? I don't know. I feel like if I do, like I'm going to have like a, a problem with like my liver or appendicitis <laughs> or something's going to just bust or something like that. No, but um, I mean, I, here's the, the musician doesn't decide to pull the plug, right? And doesn't pull the plug. Yeah, I mean... Someone the, else pulls the plug. The story is very hard to believe. Pulling the plug, quote-unquote, is like bullshit. Like, that's not a thing. And if... It's not like there's a single button. It's not like the easy button. You I, know, you don't go back and press a, a red button that that's like the kill switch. I will say at Bourbon and Beyond uh, two weeks ago, uh, some someone did unplug it. Unplug the cord twice during someone's set like clearly like it it turned everything off yeah you could just hear the the monitors on stage oh and it was like oh that's all the house sound twice but do you think a a a band that's touring with another band no ever has the ego we have no evidence for this sort of ego no from rush for rush no like Another band, maybe. I mean, they're playing pretty big places and are a fairly big deal. And I don't think Alex and Neil and Getty spend their time pulling plugs out of walls or pressing easy buttons or doing any of that. And I'm sure, I'm sure when they're out on tour with Toto, they're like trying to get like some, you know, some bodyguards to keep those guys away from each other from doing each other's cocaine. I'm just saying it's Toto, for God's sakes. These guys are not. These guys are not like, you know, <laughs> having sex with lizard people and stuff on tour. So I did a little more Da-na-na. digging. Love is it always on time. Here's the thing. After he tours this book, after Lukather tours this book, he backs off this story. So the book comes out like 2018. There's a 2021 interview where he says, oh, it didn't have anything to do with the bands. That was just the crew. This is Steve Lukather says this <clears throat> after peddling this story. For years. Sometimes these crew guys just go at it. It was 100 years ago, and it doesn't matter, and I'm not holding on to some grudges. Oh, so we just hired... We hired jerks. Yeah. That's it. (laughs) Just hired jerks. Just Just blame blame the roadies. Blame it on the road crew. Uh, Okay, so maybe there's another story that comes up about Rush having a run-in with another act that needs to be discussed. Okay, so I think we can put the Toto one away. That one seems bogus. But the second thing I uncovered involved the Runaways. You mean Lita, Joan Jett? Yeah. Did you see the movie, the one with Kristen Stewart? Uh, yeah. So yes. there's a scene in that movie. Do you, do you remember the scene in the movie about the altercation they run into with a rock band? That's Rush? So it, it doesn't say in the movie, but Joan Jett has said that that is Rush. Oh. Well, <coughs> that's totally different. So they were label mates. Both of them were on Phonogram and Mercury. Yeah. So, so when people talk about this altercation, they have there has to be a reason why, right? Yeah. Well, so there's a particular photo that often gets cited, and it's this photo. It's in the show notes of both of these bands in a booth together, and the Runaways look pretty pissed off. But 
first of all, I think the Runaways, that was part of the shtick at the time, was looking pissed off. They never smile. They like never smiled, right? right. But it, it's actually totally unrelated. The story there is that this was an industry party thrown for Rush in the 70s when they were in L.A. playing the Forum. And I'm pretty sure that somebody, because they were label mates, wanted this photo to happen. Yeah. Right? Because they're both in the same room. So, like I said, find it in the show notes. It's pretty entertaining. But the actual beef supposedly comes from an incident that happened in Detroit at Cobo Hall on February 10th, 1977. They've been very specific. Joan Jett has been very specific about this. And it the, the first time it's really noted that I could find is actually 10 years later, in 1987, when Spin Magazine runs a piece about Joan Jett. This is fun. Okay. It's almost a throwaway because of how fast it is. So this is from Spin. So, quote, One night, Rush watched them play from the wings of the stage. Joan saw them laughing. The assholes. They're assholes. I don't care if you print that. End quote. And that's it. That's the mention of it. Until this movie comes out. But, side note, let's just talk about this 1987 piece for a second. Yeah. So, how do you remember what's going on in Joan Jett's life at this point in 1987? She's in that movie. It's a freaking Paul Schrader movie. Yeah. So, if film buffs, just pony up here for a second. Paul Schrader, taxi driver. And he's made a lot of hard to sort of digest really gritty movies. He makes this movie in 87. That's not hard and gritty. (laughs) Have you seen it? Yeah, but probably not since 87. So do you know that he wrote it for Springsteen? Nah. And then Springsteen was like, I'm not doing that. (laughs) And so he rewrote the character as being female and got Joan Jett to do it. No. But here's, here's the most fun rock and roll bedtime story factoid about this whole thing. Do you know who appears in that movie as quasi-extra, I mean, he's a band member, but he's very young and mostly unknown at the time. No. Trent Reznor. He's in that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he's in Light, uh, light and Day. 87? In 1987. Do that math. That's pre- Light of Day. Pre-Pretty Hate Machine. Yeah. It's pre-all that stuff. Cleveland. Cleveland rocks. It's unbelievable. Uh, so, okay, all that aside, this beef with Rush. It's said to be about sound checks, okay? There are slightly different versions of this story that are floating around, but from what I can parse, there is a three-band bill on this particular night in Detroit, and things run late, and the runaways don't get their sound check. And then, to make matters worse, Joan sees them, sees Rush at the side of the stage, and they seem to be laughing. So she takes it personally. I love this Rush being jerks story. This is great. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of fun. <laughs> so this incident, because it's in the it's in the movie, starts getting press again in 2010 when Joan is doing interviews to promote the film. And this is from Jam Music of 2010, January 2020, 2010. Joan Jett says members of Rush were anything but polite Canucks. I love that that's <laughs> happening. When the Runaways opened for them in the 70s and the new film biopic about the band titled The Runaways, Jet, played by Kristen Stewart, is derided by an unidentified rock group they're opening for. She later retaliates by breaking into their dressing room and urinating on one of their guitars. Yeah, I can't forget that at all. Jet doesn't hesitate to identify the real-life inspiration for the scene. Rush, 
They sat on the side of the stage and laughed at us, Jet said. That's sort of... That sort of stuff pisses me off. Well, so this sets off this opportunity all these years after after the fact for the Rush guys to respond. Because imagine that, right? So you have Joan Jett in the press. This movie's coming out. She tells this story. And so now, you know, people are just calling Getty Lee's house and being like, hey, what's up with this, right? Now, not everybody. People from Prague Magazine call him. And... <laughs> Do you want to read that? You want to read his response to this? Yes, because it's exciting. This is when a story gets awesome. Thanks for the letter, Nick, by the way, because I get to read this to you. Quote, the runaways had a ginormous chip on their shoulders. I remember that show. We had trouble with our gear, so our soundtrack got delayed, and the runaways never got one. But we were always good to whoever was opening for us. We had no bias against them because they were girls. None of that bullshit. I know they said that we were laughing at them when they played, but quite frankly, they were too shitty to listen to. <laughs> and, for, <laughs> and 40 years later, they have a story to tell about Okay, it. so that that's not very nice. But you also have to feel for a guy like Getty who is probably getting woken up <laughs> by the phone with some guy being like, so what do you have to say about what Joan Jett said about you? And he's like, hey, that was 40 years ago, 30 years ago. I don't remember any of this. Cherry Bob. I'm sure. This actually continues to dog the band for a while. So I dug up this clip. It's in the show notes. Alex doing a Q&A event years later, like 2016. And he gets asked about the same situation. And he basically says that he doesn't remember it. And then he makes a passing dig that it might have been the roadies. The crew. Yeah. They blame the crew again. Yeah. The, right. They didn't blame the crew the first time. Lukather blamed the crew. Yeah. Which isn't super nice. So he also says that if Joan or the Runaways had actually peed on guitars, they would have had to have been their own. But it's very unclear why he thinks that. He just gets a big laugh out of it because it's like a sit-down Q&A thing that they're doing in this public forum. And it's clearly like home field advantage right like everybody's there to see alex so alex is getting a lot of laughs so oh yeah they would have peed on their own guitars but i don't understand why that would have been their own guitars but anyway that doesn't work for me man yeah so the question we got from nick was are are they the asshole yeah is, is there a dark side to rush and with this evidence what do you think i'm getty lee and i was sing what i want <laughs> I I just think I just think that this had to be isolated. I'm I'm thinking there's no way that they're jerks. I, I mean, I, I do remember reading about Alex, and he got arrested once. I think for being overserved and being a, not nice. No, I mean, that's interesting evidence. Yeah, yeah. According to the Naples Daily News, this comes back. 2004, so we're, we're almost 20 years old at this point. Yeah. But the Naples Daily News, two international recording artists from very different eras were in the ballroom of the posh Ritz-Carlton Naples New Year's Eve bash. One rang in the New Year in the jail cell. The other was left wondering what happened. Freddie Cole, the 71-year-old younger brother of the late legendary performer Nat King Cole, was hired to play a $650 a couple black tie event where a dispute began between the lead guitarist for the rock group Rush and the Collier County Sheriff's deputies. Man. Cole has been nominated for a Grammy Award and has played Carnegie Hall. I love how they're like giving his accolades. And look at the BS he has to put up with. He's known for his deep voice jazz love songs. 
Uh, Cole said that he had no idea that a man in a white suit who jumped onto the stage where he was performing was the son of the lead guitarist for the internationally known Canadian rock band Rush. The son. The son's action started a chain of events that resulted in a clash between deputies and Alex, known on stage as Alex Lifeson, and his son, Justin. Freaking kids. Cole said, I like how they only talked to Nacking Cole's brother or whoever this was. Uh, yeah, brother. So <laughs> Cole said he had, uh, over with his over decades of performing, has seen his share of people walk up to the stage and act crazy, and he usually tries to ignore them, just as he did that night. The less you say, the better, the 71-year-old said. I have learned over the years not to lend credence to people acting crazy. Uh, likewise, Cole said he tried to tune out Justin's remarks after he grabbed the microphone. He said something like, how about a nice round of applause for this Count Basie? <laughs> Look at how much, fun, how much fun we are. We're gigantic dicks. We're laughing at Nat King Cole's son. Nat King Cole's his, brother. His brother. Oh, wait. Getting made fun of by Alex Lifeson's son. <laughs> we're, we're terrible. Is, are, is Rush, are they mean to other musicians? No, but their kids are. And it's awesome. Alex was wearing a dark suit that night, but Cole said he did not know whether the Rush guitarist was the other person who went on stage. Cole said he has never even heard of the group Rush, let alone seen the guitarist's face. Yeah, sure. This I, I have to say, the journalism behind this article at the Naples Daily News leaves a little bit to be desired. Yeah. Well, um, they, they, they didn't interview the Canadian people. That were real in, important in this article, so that's that's why that's a little so biased. Some of the guests didn't take kindly to the dance moves of Alex Lifeson's party. <laughs> I know when they came up and started dancing all over the dance floor, several people left. They were doing some gyrations. <laughs> oh, good t- good vibrations. He, he said he first learned of the brawl between deputies and the rock star and his son when he was having a drink after his performance. I said their only source for this article is Nat King Cole's brother. I know. I know. (laughs) I said, where did it happen? It was so hush-hush, I didn't know anything about it. I don't think the guests did either. When you work in places that serve alcohol, anything is subject to happen. But I wouldn't think it would happen at the Ritz-Carlton. Oh, man. First, that was brutal. The first part of that last thing he said. Secondly, man, taking a shot at the place. So when he leaves the county jail on January 2nd, Alex has dried blood splattered over the front of his white shirt, a swollen nose, which he said was broken, and dark circles under his eyes. Mm-hmm. Arrest reports allege that the Rush guitarist interviewed, intervened when deputies were escorting his son off the property after he refused to leave the stage. The state that Justin told hotel security supervisor Frank Barner. They state that the Justin told hotel security supervisor Frank Barner to F off. I'm going to sing my wife a effing song. <laughs> yeah. So still we can go back to the, the hypothesis that Rush is not mean to other musicians, <laughs> except <laughs> Nat King Cole's brother. <laughs> So freaking awesome. It's such a great answer, Nick. 
listen, I think the answer here is just watch how much your kids drink. You know, if, if you're gonna if you're gonna go party on New Year's, just be careful. That's I, you can never know what's happening in a place that serves alcohol. You should listen to Nat King Cole's brother, who's freaking right, one hundred percent. It is right. all true. Yeah. It is all true. Before you know it, someone's gonna have a bunch of Long Island iced teas and get up on stage and talk about how shitty a band Rush is, and there's gonna be a fight. There's gonna be a fight between a couple of guys. Someone's gonna be like, "Man, the Spirit of Radio's best song ever." I don't know what you're talking about, you drunken moron. I'd never even heard of that band, let alone know what they look like. <laughs> you guys have clearly never heard of John Mayer. There could be just a huge, gigantic, uh, like a uh, a brawl happen where someone wow. makes fun of Getty Lee. How how we got here, Nick? I hope this is suitable for you. Uh, wow, and we and we answered it. <laughs> Somewhat. I think so. So if you have a question mm-hmm. that you would like us to answer, you know, we are we are willing participants in this experiment uh, called Rock and Roll History Podcasting. Send us an email. It's wearethestoryguys at gmail.com. On Instagram, you can find us backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. And we have a Patreon. Support uh-huh. the show. Grab some extra content on a regular basis. And that happens at uh, patreon.com slash rock and roll bedtime stories. But until next time, what should people keep doing, Murdoch? Keep telling. Stories Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.